Up next, we're making contact. The pandemic, loss, and racial inequity. For this week's episode, we turn our attention to those Americans who are bearing the brunt of the coronavirus fallout. According to the CDC, Blacks and Latinos are three times as likely to die from COVID as their white counterparts. This disproportionate harm has sparked a response from community organizers and researchers alike. We will hear from folks on the front lines to data experts looking to use pandemic-related research to address racial and health disparities and to initiate progressive change. It's such a blessing for you guys to be in our neighborhood. I live right around the corner, three houses down. And usually I don't have a car, I don't drive anymore, but I just thank God for how you guys are blessing me. But I tell you one thing, I really enjoy hearing you guys pray before you start. That means it's going to be a blessing to everyone. Okay? Yes, it is. Well, we're in it together. It's been a hard pandemic, as you know. You know, I don't got to tell you nothing, but we got we to figure out how to take care of each other because nobody's going to come to take care of us. In East Oakland, California, residents pick up supplies at Homies Empowered People's Freedom Store, a former bookstore turned makeshift grocery store where those in need can grab a week's worth of essentials. J.P. Haler, a member of the Homies Freedom Store care team, says that the pandemic has hit local families hard. A lot of our folks are essential workers in the community, and that very quickly impacted them because they lost their jobs. So within the first week, we saw a lot of folks with joblessness and housing issues and and health crises in their homes. As we know, the Latino community has been impacted very um, disproportionately, and so that is a big um, portion of the folks coming through here. So right away, we saw saw our community um, needing resources for food and dried goods and different things so that we very quickly went from 150 people coming through to about 400 and something folks coming through each week. The day I stopped by the community store, the line stretched for blocks. I was told that people start gathering around 8 a.m. in order to secure their spot in line. Mostly women, young and old, black and Latino, two groups disproportionately affected by COVID-19, health-wise and economically. Just this morning, I was talking to a family that says, you know, I got to get out of where I'm living by this hour. What can we do? Diego Augusto Rodriguez Zamora, a member of the Homies Freedom Store. You know, they just told us, you know, for about a month, they had to go. Uh, Sorry, it's just so difficult. For a month, this whole family had to go stay at a park. You know, that you look at the kids in the line. You know, they're still smiling. They're still happy. That That's that's where a lot of our community, you know, I live in the zip code 94601. You know, that's one of the highly impacted for COVID. You know, you go walk the community. That's all you have to do. Just walk in the community. Go look and see it for yourself. You'll see the people that are out there doing what they need to do to get by. Diego zip code 94601 has the highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Oakland. 3,375 cases to be exact. That's a ratio of 6,287 per 100,000 residents, according to the Alameda County Public Health Department. Other areas of Oakland, mostly affected by the pandemic, not surprisingly, are also mostly Latinx and Black, as well as low income. 
And what's happening in Oakland isn't unique. It's pretty much the same across the country when it comes to black and brown communities and COVID-19. Many public health advocates and researchers say that the data highlights racial inequities. Samantha Artiga, Vice President and Director of Racial Equity and Health Policy Program at Kaiser Family Foundation. Broadly across states, we see that in most states, uh, black Americans are accounting for a disproportionate share of cases and deaths relative to their share of the population. Similarly, broadly across most states, we see that the Latino population is accounting for a disproportionate share of cases relative to their share of the population. Uh, there are some nuances in what those patterns look like across states. In, for example, there are some states States where those disparities are particularly wide. For example, um, there are a number of states where the share of cases among Hispanic people is three times higher than their share of the population. Um, similarly, there are some states where their share of cases and deaths among black people is two times higher than their share of the population. Um, I think we also see in some states uh, really stark disparities for the American Indian and Alaska Native population. In the U.S., the number of people infected with the virus has reached over 17 million confirmed cases, and the mortality rate has surpassed 300,000, according to the COVID tracking project. Samantha Artiga says there are many factors that contribute to the high rates of infection among Black and Latinos as compared to the infection rate among whites. I think broadly what we're seeing across people of color is a set of factors that place them at increased risk for exposure to the virus through employment and jobs that cannot be done remotely, but also through living conditions, for example, being more likely to live in larger households, in densely populated areas, increased reliance on public transportation also increases risk of exposure. So there are a whole set of circumstances that increase risk of exposure for certain populations. And then we also know that in particular, Black and American Indian and Alaska Native people have higher rates of underlying health conditions uh, that are associated with increased risk of serious illness if they contract the virus, which may be one factor that is contributing to some of the increased hospitalization and mortality rates that we're seeing. But we also know, for example, that there are increased barriers to testing and treatment for people of color, uh, in part due to higher uninsured rates and other barriers to health care, uh, which may mean that they are not seeking care until uh, they are in a more advanced stage of illness. We did one analysis, for example, that showed that among people who tested positive for coronavirus, people of color were more likely to require inpatient care and oxygen at the time that they tested positive. So that was suggestive that they potentially had delayed testing until they were in more serious condition. The analysis of COVID data is uncovering pronounced, long-standing systemic racism and health inequities. Clearly, according to data, people of color are at a greater risk of dying from the virus. The pandemic has exacerbated challenges related to housing, employment, and adequate health care, issues that low-income families were already struggling to navigate. COVID-19 only helped to make a bad situation worse. Alice Goldfarb 
team lead with the COVID Racial Data Tracker, a collaboration between the COVID Tracking Project and the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. From my sense of the data and yes, that absolutely all of the compounding problems are are apparent in exactly that. The people who are most reliant on public elementary schools being open so that they can go to work, the people who do need to work outside of the home or their current work is outside of the home, that the choices that were made about what to keep open and what to close, about whether to provide economic support so that people could stay home and stay safe, that that was done without sufficient consideration for many communities and the way many people live. And, you know, also there are certainly, you know, there are certainly people who were treated very differently when they did test positive or did try to go to a hospital that is just like one more example of of racist systems at the worst possible moment, sort of built one on top of one another. It's important to note that in my conversation with Alice Goldfarb, she stated that her remark was outside of her role for the COVID racial data tracker, but she does bring attention to racism within systems that continue to perpetuate a damaging cycle of wealth, health, and social inequities. And those inequities won't disappear simply because there's a vaccine. A ver, Leonardo, ¿necesito pañales? Sí, Back at the Homies Empowered People Freedom Store, J.P. Haler is admiring the resilience of the community, but at the same time, wanting this pandemic to prompt transformative shifts in how the country addresses issues impacting disenfranchised communities. In this line, and it's often moms and their children. We like to think of these moms and grandmothers as like the revolutionaries here, you know, that they find a way to get food and to find resources for their families. But I would say, you know, one of the things that's hardest to learn is that there are layers upon layers of things that are happening for families, like losing housing, losing jobs, being impacted by COVID, being hungry. And there's so many resources that are needed that, to me, the thing that I think hits hardest is there's got to be a better, a better way. There's got to be a better way moving forward. Like, how do we use this moment in time to find real support systems that will keep our folks basically well and fed and paid for good work when these things happen, because these things are going to keep happening. Haler's concern about finding real support may be supported in the data being compiled on COVID and the racial disparities impacting Black and brown communities during the pandemic. Alice Goldfarb, with the COVID Racial Data Tracker, also believes that the data collected can be used to positively impact people's lives moving forward. If we are able to take this lens of looking at what's going on and do something about it in between when it's a national emergency, then we can build hopefully some of the systems that are needed to to keep it from happening the next time. And then I also just think that having, you know, sort of along with that, having better data practices and more data literacy can help people you know, when at the beginning of something, understand what information is trustworthy and 
how to how to make choices that that work for a f- entire place and you know to understand what things need to be done for the sake of the whole state or the whole city um that i think there are some choices that have have been made that that work for certain segments of the population and not overall. Alice Goldfarb emphasizes the importance of conducting health outreach in a way that addresses social concerns and resonates with multicultural populations. Now with a vaccine developed for distribution, compounded with the deeply rooted mistrust of the medical industry within the black community, clearly there won't be a one-size-fits-all approach to eliminating the threat of COVID simply because there's now a vaccine. One of the things I really hope is, um, especially, you know, we're, we're in this moment when the vaccine is starting to roll out and people keep saying, like, what can we do so that people will trust the vaccine? And I feel like that's not the right question. The question should be, what can you do to be trustworthy so that people do trust you? You know, there's a, there are reasons to be skeptical of health systems, of what doctors tell people for all sorts of very valid reasons. And I think, unfortunately, the framing is sometimes about why why are Black people more skeptical about the vaccine? It's because doctors have treated Black people worse. Because if you go to the ER and get turned away with the same symptoms that somebody else would be admitted, that's, that's not a way to gain trust. And so it's not an irrational reaction, but it also means that the people who are acting in those discriminatory ways or the systems that are acting in those discriminatory ways need to be fixed in order to make changes in the future more possible. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson reporting in Oakland, California. Nationally, 83% of all farm workers surveyed by the Department of Labor are Latinx public-facing employees, like grocery, delivery, food service, and laundry workers, are putting themselves at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19. Many of these workers, specifically in California, are lower paid and also Latinx. To quote Kaiser Health News from December 18th, Latinos represent 39% of California's population, but have accounted for nearly 57% of the state's COVID cases and 48% of its COVID deaths. Making Contact producer Monica Lopez looks at the impact of the pandemic on West Coast farm workers in 2020. Lucy Cruz lives on California's central coast. She works in the strawberry fields as a farm worker and is a mother of four. Like many single moms, she does what she can to support her family. But when we spoke in April of 2020, Cruz's situation, along with everyone else's, had changed. The other years at this time, strawberries get good. There's a lot of strawberry. And now with the virus, work is down a lot, and we don't earn very much because there are no more strawberries. There is no more now because they no longer add a lot of chemicals because the product stores are full because of the virus. 
During the first few months of the pandemic, many growers slowed down crop production as the industry's biggest customers, like restaurants and schools, transitioned to takeout and distance learning. Time passed more slowly then. Some lost their jobs, businesses closed, and bills, rent, payroll, and mortgage payments continued or piled up until assistance came. Others, like Lucy Cruz, would get little to no government assistance. The government also says about the impact on us, no, no, you won't be receiving any help. And it makes me feel very bad because we are the ones who work so hard, risking our health with the coronavirus. And what they do with immigrants is really very, very unfair because they do not offer us any help and we're the ones who work the most. Those who suffer, those who work in the rain, in the mud, work in the fields, and on the contrary, they give more help to those who are those who were born here. On December 9, 2020, the National Center for Farmworker Health released a fact sheet. It said that over 30 states reported to the CDC that Latinx workers made up a little more than a third of farm and food production workers. But Latinos made up 73% of lab-confirmed COVID cases in those industries. You know, our mission is really to make sure that all farm workers and all farm worker families in the U.S. have access to good, high-quality health care services. Bethany Bagas Alcauter is the manager of evaluation at the National Center for Farmworker Health. She's also a Ph.D. candidate in occupational epidemiology at the University of Texas. California farmworkers have you know, really gotten hammered by COVID, as has happened in many other states, and especially in the West, you know, where they're suffering from all the wildfire smoke. COVID has, you know, exacerbated a lot of existing systemic problems experienced by farm workers throughout the country. I asked Alcauter whether she had access to a demographic breakdown of COVID cases among farm workers. No, not at all. There is really very poor tracking of that. You know, OSHA now Originally, they were not requiring employers to report COVID cases among their workforce, but now um, they are if the employer believes that the worker contracted COVID at work. So that data is now being collected, but I doubt that it will be very good just because of it's kind of a little bit vague um, in terms of exactly what COVID case needs to be tracked and what doesn't. So that data could potentially provide some information about you know, which farm workers were affected. But right now, that, that information doesn't exist. That's a gap that the COVID-19 farm worker study is beginning to fill. Researchers and community-based organizations in California, Washington, and Oregon have been surveying farm workers since May 2020. Jennifer Martinez is the principal investigator of the Oregon survey. She is also a PhD candidate at Portland State University. The goal of the survey was to provide, first of all, uh, data, right? Uh, we knew that we needed the data. We needed to know what was happening. We needed to hear it from farm workers directly. We needed to hear it from their own voices. So that was one of the goals. And so because we worked through community-based organizations, we were able to hear directly um, through farm workers through those trusted networks. And those trusted networks were really the magic in the survey. Without them, um, you know, questions about COVID-19, questions about healthcare 
questions about uh, you know mental health that wouldn't have been answered uh, without those trusted networks. Survey researchers published their preliminary results based on the responses of over 200 surveys. And so what it's telling us is that we need to do a little uh, more to really reach farm workers. A lot of them were not aware of their rights um, to sick leave and family leave. Um, they were not aware of organized relief funds here in the state of Oregon. And um, a lot of that has to do not only because how we're reaching folks, a lot of farm workers don't have access to internet and as our world is becoming more virtual, um, we're seeing the need for that. Kern County, this is a special update on COVID-19. Forge 103.9 in collaboration with Kern Soul News, keeping you safe and informed. Todos estamos pasando por situaciones únicas en estos días y debemos mantenernos en calma y alejados del pánico. Maria Barquín is the program director of a network of radio stations that caters to multilingual farm worker communities. During times of physical distancing, radio and social media have played a critical role in getting out information. Actually, this is part of our daily mission uh, to serve and, and be the voice of the farm worker community. That's why uh, Radio Campesina was founded. Radio Campesina is a network of seven radio stations in California, Arizona, Washington, and Nevada. La Network Campesina's website says their target audiences are, quote, newly arrived immigrants specifically originating from rural areas of Mexico and Central America between the ages of 25 and 49. The stations, through the United Farm Workers Foundation, would stay in touch with farm worker communities. We also go to the fields. We go in, in during lunchtime and, and take uh, burritos. We take advantage of the opportunity being in the field by educating them when we're there and also um, gather information of their concerns. COVID changed that. But we're still very connected through our WhatsApp, social media. Actually, uh, as they're working, we have an app, uh, not just terrestrial radio. We also have the different, you know, streaming platforms and they're listening in their phones uh, while they're picking up products. So um, we do know that they're listening to us because they're essential right now, they're working. And so whenever we, we ask them for feedback, we create service in our Facebook, they always um, you know, engage with the station because they know that's where they're gonna, they're gonna get the, the, the direction, a trust uh, resource for them. Resources, whether it's critical information in Spanish or Mixteco, food or financial assistance, has not primarily come from government sources. Even though everyone in the U.S. directly benefits from farm worker labor, it's actually food pantries, medical and legal clinics, community organizations like CAUSE in California's Tri-Counties, and longstanding institutions like the UFW Foundation, and UndocuFund projects that have sprung up in recent years that deliver real day-to-day -day assistance. We also have another entity, is the Education Fund, in where we help uh, students after school with their homework, the feedback that we've been getting from our listeners is that the parents are uh, working. And now that some of the schools are closed, those kids are at home. So who's doing the homeschooling at home with them? Uh, what kind of resources uh, they have? They may not have internet. Uh, they may not have an eye, uh, a computer for their kids to do uh, their homework. So that's one of the biggest concerns right now that they have, the ones that have kids. How I do homeschooling. When it comes to farm work and immigration status, 
there's another important worker classification. It's called H-2A. The group Farmworker Justice defines the H-2A program as a, quote, guest worker program that allows agricultural employers to hire workers from other countries on temporary work permits for jobs that last 10 months or less. Bethany Bogus Alcauter from the National Center for Farmworker Health. Workers with the H-2A guest worker visa have been especially vulnerable to outbreaks, and we think that's because the federal agencies involved in regulating the H-2A program have not put together strong enough recommendations or enforceable guidelines to make sure that when workers are brought from Mexico and other countries to the U.S. and all brought together from different parts, that they haven't had strong enough quarantine procedures or requirements for COVID testing, and all those workers get put together in the same shared housing and the same shared transportation. And so they've been, they've just been really vulnerable to the outbreaks. She recalls the death of Marco Antonio Galvan Gomez, who was in the U.S. on a guest worker visa. He worked on a potato farm, and the farm that he worked at had two other workers uh, die as well from COVID. You know, and his story was he got here, he got sick within a week or two of arriving to the U.S. He got put in a trailer by himself to quarantine, but he was left really without any food. There was no one checking on him. Um, and he was only in communication with his wife. And this was on a, you know, a pretty remote farm there, about 30 minutes by car from town. And this worker didn't have a car. And so he was communicating with his wife in Mexico that he was feeling very sick and didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do because obviously they're unfamiliar with the U.S. healthcare system and how things work. And he ended up dying really in a lot of pain alone in his trailer. Immigration status plays out in other ways as well. Farm workers certainly a difficult and backbreaking job. The majority of farm workers are undocumented, often deal with you know, wage theft issues. That's Lucas Sucker. He's the policy director for CAUSE, the Central Coast Alliance for a United and Sustainable Economy in California. For folks who are undocumented, they're less likely to want to report if there are labor violations of the field. There's um, just a, a greater level of fear of authorities. There's also the element of the lack of safety net that people have, right? If you're undocumented, you are not eligible for, for Medi-Cal, the state's public health care program. Um, you're not eligible for unemployment insurance after you're not working, right? You're not eligible for subsidized housing. And so a lot of undocumented low-wage immigrant workers are really living paycheck to paycheck right on the edge. And so the incentive to work even in a dangerous situation um, is pretty strong when you really don't have much of a safety net if you're not working. Working and raising a family or just living your life with little to no safety net adds stressors that can weigh heavily on people. That's why researcher Jennifer Martinez and her colleagues asked questions to widen the scope of the Oregon survey. What we wanted to add um, was a little more context on farm workers as a whole person, right? We often like to research farm workers and, in the workplace, but it's important to remember that farm workers, you know, have a community. And so we had a lot of questions about mental health as well um, that I think are really important. And that's something that was different from some of the other surveys. They asked about tensions in the home with their partner or neighbors, but these more taboo subjects mostly went unanswered. But they were really willing to talk to us about difficulties trying to get their kids engaged in school, especially for their older children. 
we need to do something to support farm workers, not only in the workplace, but we need to think of them as full families and communities. And so we also need to figure out how to support farm worker children and that next generation to ensure that we're not really creating a gap here and an underclass of farm worker communities. In early December, California lawmakers introduced a state bill that would prioritize medical treatment and vaccination against COVID-19 for food industry workers. That includes grocery store workers and farm workers. For Making Contact, I'm Monica Lopez in Los Angeles. You've been listening to The Pandemic, Loss and Racial Inequity on Making Contact. For other shows and more information about this episode, visit radioproject.org. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.